Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Mike may still be on an airplane. Jason's on the line, so Hunt and Jason are going to have to make up for Mike not being available. Uh, yeah. But we're prepared for that. I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> you, you met Jason last week when we were all talking into the same speaker. I told Mike and Jason that the feedback I'd had from the call last week is Jason was making more sense than Mike or myself was making. So he was stacked by popular demand. You know, spend a little bit of time on macro issues and oil and gas, but then we're going to interrupt our discussion of chip stocks, having done the chip equipment companies and having done the video last week, we're going to do Adobe this week because it's a company that Jason and Mike have owned and they're very familiar with, and, uh, they announced an acquisition that was very controversial. We're going to interrupt our discussion of chip stocks. I think we were going to do AMD or something this week in order to pick up uh, Adobe. And Mike and Jason know a lot more about that than I do. So I'm going to just cover oil and gas and macro stuff in a five or 10 minutes, and then we'll switch over and Jason will carry the ball on Adobe. I think oil and gas pricing, interest rates, inflation, what have you, all is become kind of macro event. By that, I mean world, you know, impacted by world events rather than impacted by things going on in, in the U.S. economy. I think that rather than focus a lot on oil and gas pricing, we're going to concentrate the things that are having an impact and, and have quite a lot of influence. And in no particular order. Well, actually, I, try, I will try to make an order out of it. Going from the most influential to the less influential, I'm going to have a surprising entry of the most influential. I'd say the most influential in terms of impact on our capital market and commodities markets and, and the kinds of things that Mike and Jason invest in is China rather than Russia and the war in Ukraine. And the reason China is so influential is that they've taken an economy where the plan, and remember, it's, you know, run by the Communist Party, or they've taken a plan of having 6% growth, real growth after inflation. And they seem to have, if, if the year isn't over yet, but most projections for the year in China is that they're not going to be up 6%. They're going to be down 2 or 3%. What's going on? Well, obviously, one of the things that's going on has been coping with COVID by doing lockdown. You know, city, whole city, 20, 25 million people at a time. And that's really hobbled their economy. I think the other thing that is, is having an impact on their economy towards more state ownership and state direction of the economy. For instance, uh, uh, if we go back 
69 on Alibaba wanted to take its financial business, its payment business, and ANC public in Hong Kong. And the, uh, the government, the Communist Party stepped in and, and more or less went from having this huge public offering to having Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, more or less under house arrest. Similar things happened to Tencent, one of the other prominent Chinese companies built around an app that is used in China to communicate, but also with heavy involvement in gaming. The Chinese government decided that games couldn't be distributed until they licensed them. And then they decided, which a lot of us on the call will think is a good idea, it's maybe not imposed from the top, that that uh, young people shouldn't spend more than, I think, with two hours a week on games and play how they were going to close that. But anyway, that was a problem for Tencent. The other thing that China has done, it's like 15 or 20% of their, I mean, a big chunk of their economy is residential construction. And the way residential construction or a high portion of residential construction in China works is if you're a Chinese family, you buy an apartment and you may have an apartment, but you may buy another apartment as kind of investment or for your kids or whatnot. And the way that works is you sign a contract and you start paying on the apartment maybe a full year or two before the developer starts to build the apartment. Well, in the past, like in 08, when everything in the world slowed down, they loaded a lot more money into the business. And they use that to kind of keep their economy growing when the U.S. and Europe and were having trouble. But they did so much of that, and they borrowed so much money in those developers, the most prominent of which is Evergrande, which they not only borrowed money internally in China, but Evergrande borrowed money outside of China, $20 billion worth. And those note holders, $20 billion, which are mostly U.S. managed institutions, have hired the typical people, you know, who will add Loki and Kirkland and Ellis and whatnot to press their case. Well, good luck. I mean, you can try to press the case in Hong Kong or in China, but, you know, what are you really going to do? So they've been trying to work with the management, come up with a plan to get part of their $20 billion back. It's typical of what happens when there's reorganization. At the same time, Chinese citizens, millions of them, stop paying on the apartments because they could see that the apartment building had been started. They would read on the internet or in newspapers that the developer was in trouble. If Evergrande or someone else would, wasn't able to roll their debt, they were looking for the central government to come in and rescue the developers. Central government probably in a smart way said, no, we're not going to do that this time. And so this is going to have to be worked out. The other thing the central government said was, if it's between finishing the, the building, the people will start paying again and pay external debt, like this debt that Evergreen had, finish the building. So those people advised by investment banking and lawyers are, you know, they're out of luck. There isn't going to be a reorganization. What this has done is taken a big chunk of the Chinese economy and put it into decline. So where's the impact? Well, the impact is on the price of oil. 
price of oil would still be $95 rather than $83 if it weren't for problems in China. It's on LNG, despite the need that Europe has for it, has gone from a trade as high as 70 or 80, it's back to 35. Why is it back to 35? Well, China, China's just not using as much power, so they don't need as much LNG. So they have a huge demand in Europe, but less demand in Asia. We haven't seen the impact on supply chain for Apple, you know, which has an awful lot of equipment made in China. The Foxconn and the other big employers seem to have been able to work around the COVID restrictions and work around the overall impact on the economy. But China, China is the second largest economy if you convert everything to dollars, and they basically are hurting. Now, the leadership, normally you, you did two two terms as leader, and then someone else became leader. Xi was president, head of the Communist Party, head of the army and whatnot, is going to be elected to a third term. So he's been cleaning house and, you know, trying to have his supporters and protégés and whatnot to key positions of power. As I look at it, and I'm not a China expert. I mean, I know about China because I'm basically an energy expert. But, or I, I claim to have some experience in energy, no real experience in China. But the second largest economy has an impact on us, especially in the kinds of things we've been discussing, whether it be ship manufacturing equipment or, or, or ship design or whatnot. I mean, the market for this, when we looked at people like LAM and ASML and whatnot, you looked at their 10 Qs. 50% of their sales were into China. When we were discussing the video last week, the fact that the U.S. Is, uh, is putting a limit on NVIDIA's ability or AMD's ability to ship their highest end ships into Chinese consuming consumers, individual or, or commercial. So it has an impact on everything. Now, why does it have more weight than the war in the Ukraine? I think the reason it has more weight, and again, this is going to get to energy pricing, is that I think led by Germany, who is the largest and best financed entity in the European Union, who's number three in terms of economic activity in the, in the world. I, I think from an energy point of view, which seems to be what everyone worries about, can they get through the winter? I think they've done a remarkable job so far of piling up uh, LNG. Germany, it takes a long time to build an LNG receiving terminal, but there are these ships you can use that's where you, one LNG ship comes up to the second offload the LNG, and then the ship that stays in place uh, gasifies the LNG and puts it into a, and connects it into a pipeline. They've got five of those in place or about to be in place. They've made deals with other places that have LNG terminals to get gas into their grids. They, they've extended uh, some new states. They stockpiled a lot of coal. I could be wrong, but I think they're set up to get through this winter. Okay, clearly what Russia is trying to do, and I don't want to just identify as Putin because I think if something happened to Putin, you just get someone else in his place trying to do the same thing. Russia clearly wants to roll NATO back. The way they think they can roll NATO back is to kind of separate out Germany because Germany is was using about 40% of their energy was coming from Russia. So where we are, I think, is that Europe may get a little better as compared to what people would project now. China, I'm not as confident about. 
but I guess I've taken more than half of the 30 minutes getting through the macro part of the call. So I think I'm going to stand down now that we have Mike on the line, we've got Jason on the line, have them lead you through what Adobe is all about and how this acquisition fits in as compared to people looking at it and saying Adobe is doing this as a defensive move. But with that, I, I guess we have to have Jason laid off, not Mike, because we advertised Jason to stay in the linchpin here because we thought Mike would still be on the airplane. But so over to you, Jason. So I guess I'll start with describing how mobile apps and websites are designed, because that's really important to why Adobe's acquiring Figma. Traditionally, if you wanted to design a mobile app or a website, you would use a tool like Adobe's Illustrator and build a static image of, of you know, what you wanted your app to look like. Since then, that process has kind of evolved. The, the images have become a little interactive and what you've ended up with is a tool like Figma. So Figma is a, a SaaS tool accessed in a browser and it's really a design focused tool, purpose built for you know, designing apps and web pages. If you open one of the apps on your mobile phone or you're browsing the internet, likely you're encountering interfaces that were designed on Figma. This is very much a tool that graphics designers, creatives are using, maybe more in lieu of Adobe's Illustrator products, but they are, they're also still creating the graphics in an Adobe Photoshop or Adobe's products. What, what kind of sets Figma apart is some of the advantages it has is it's an interactive collaborative tool. So if you want to compare it to using Google Docs versus a desktop Word app, you're not editing your document in a silo on your computer. You're designing this with other people on your team, providing feedback. They can click on different elements in your user interface design, edit it if they so choose. You can see what they're looking at when you're um, providing comments back and forth to each other. So it's, it's much more how people today are designing uh, their user, user interfaces. What Adobe has done with their products is, you know, they're much more of a legacy software company. You install Photoshop, you install Illustrator on your computer. These were very powerful tools, still are. It was just not something that you could run in your browser until more recent technologies have been developed in the last few years. So Adobe's tried to push their products into the cloud. They do have a competing product called Adobe XD. That they have not pushed to a cloud SaaS product. Um, so a question we were asking ourselves is, was that strategic? Did Adobe know that they were going to make an acquisition for a design tool and therefore didn't put effort into to moving that up? Or was it a technical challenge that they couldn't overcome and they... They just weren't able to, and then they were kind of forced into this position where they're making this acquisition. Some of the advantages and why Adobe had to do this is, as I mentioned, the designers were kind of moving to this design SaaS product in lieu of using Illustrator, for example, to build static mockups. The hub for design-centric work became Figma rather than Adobe's tools. So where Adobe was you know, the focus and own the market. Now Figma, and there's a couple other uh, competitors out there, but Figma really is like the standard that designers are expected to know today. It's become the, the hub of like a hub and spoke model of how you design user interfaces. 
if you need a, an image, you might go out and use your Photoshop to create an image, but you're going to pull it back into Figma. So Adobe really needed to own this design collaborative center that, that Figma represents. Another big advantage of this, of this product is some of the, the collaborators in this project are going to be software engineers. They're the ones building the app. So as a software engineer, when you're looking at the static image, you're kind of guessing at the colors, you're using a color picker, maybe the designer gave you the color. In Figma, you just click on it and it says, okay, the color code is this. The dimensions of the button are this. So your software engineers can build an exact copy of the design. Whereas in the past, you ended up with something that, you know, looked kind of like what the designers wanted. And maybe you went iterated on that a few times to try to get the exact product that you wanted. But now that process is much more streamlined. So the question comes down to, did Adobe overpay for this? Mike and I's belief is they didn't. They probably paid a pretty fair price for it. Adobe has gotten a lot of downgrades uh, this week because everyone's looking at the last 12 months revenue that Figma had, which was 200, 210 million. And they're citing the, the 50 multiple on last 12 months revenue, which sounds very expensive. But there's, there's other ways, better ways that SaaS companies are valued in the market. Um, and a lot of these companies we've talked about, such as Snowflake, the better predictors are next 12 months revenue, a rule of 40, and then looking at net revenue retention. I'll pause there. Mike, Mike's the, the model expert and he, he ran four different models. And let's... <laughs> yeah. So, so again, this is relative valuation, but we, when we looked at the, a handful of models to value Figma on its own, we basically came to the conclusion that $20 billion is probably exactly what it would set in public markets in a normal case scenario. Therefore, that acquisition price at $20 billion includes no acquirer's premium. Usually you'd expect that to be an extra, at least 20 to 30%. So yeah, so I think all in, they got a good deal on a really high quality asset. Um, and sure, it probably upsets some of the existing shareholders. Adobe shareholders skew very value conscious they probably struggle to see the vision. If I can just chip in, I think what we have here and the reason we wanted to cover it rather than, you know, after we covered chip stocks for the next three or four weeks is what's likely to happen here is continued deterioration in the Adobe stock price. And that we will circle back. We'll have a commentary on Adobe for a couple of minutes each of the next several weeks, but this could be an opportunity where if Mike and Jason are right, Adobe comes through this much stronger. They certainly have the capacity on their balance sheet to pay half of those purchase price in cash. The other half is in their stock. The one thing I direct both Mike and Jason to is antitrust reaction, which if we remember NVIDIA and ARM, NVIDIA had to defend itself because ARM was based in the UK and the UK, they had to defend themselves or defend the deal in the, in the European Union and the US and in China. And eventually they gave up. I assume, and I think Mike and, and Jason would agree that this won't attract the same kind of attention from the US regulators and probably 
virtually no attention from Europe and China, but over to you guys for a commentary on that. Yeah, that, that's correct. We think that if they did follow kind of the path that you would expect, if it, then they should look at it. But most of the FTC action seems to be more politically motivated than actually trying to rein in competition. I think they, what, one, they would struggle under existing law to do this. And two, there's not a lot of political motivation to block this. So I think the probability of any serious complaint is relatively low. That being said, if you, if you were to read into what Lena Khan's aim is and some of her research and a lot of the criticisms on the, the Facebook, Instagram deal, this should be one that they would look at. But like I said, I, I kind of doubt that they will. Jason, we got about three minutes left. You've anchored us today. We'll turn the last three minutes over to you in terms of the, the investment merits of Adobe as compared to, uh, to just pick another name, Snowflake, which does entirely different kind of thing, but, but a company that we have covered one, but it seems to be getting to the point where even after all the sales and R and D costs, it's going to generate free cash flow between a price for Snowflake at 180 or 190 or something, a price for, you know, Adobe at 300 or wherever, where, of course, an intelligent answer is I want to own both of them, but how, how do you, how, how do you rank, uh, Adobe versus Snowflake? Um, TBD, uh, <laughs> um, that, that, that is a, a good comparison because Figma is a, is a very high quality asset. Some of the numbers that Adobe did publish out of the, the, their announcement was Figma's net revenue retention rate was north of 150%. And that puts them in real, very rarefied air. So net, net revenue retention is how much revenue you're getting from a, a, co a cohort of customers this year versus last year. So if they, they have 150% without adding any new customers, they're growing 50%. The only company I, I know that is higher than that is Snowflake. So these, these are the top two potentially in, in that metric. I would add too that the Figma, they did say Figma was cash flow positive. So this is a not, you know, not the normal SaaS startup that is being acquired. This is a, a very high quality asset that Adobe's that Adobe's getting. Right. And it seems to me that I think I think that would be my answer. I mean, you guys know that so much better than I do, but with kind of being very interested in cash flow, 150% retention rate means that you could just stop your sales. And I believe some of the R&D in, in a company like Adobe or like Snowflake is kind of similar to sales. In other words, it's maintaining or upgrading your, your apps so that, or the tools you're providing so that you know, they don't get stale or they continue to be more useful to people. So they, these are subscription models so that they renew the subscriptions or increase the amount they're willing to spend and whatnot. To me, as a cash flow investor, if it's 150% retention rate, that means that sales expense plus a significant part of the R&D is really his growth over and above the organic growth. So, I mean, I, I kind of like that part of it. I guess my answer would be, you know, subject to doing some more work on the value, I don't really have a preference between one and the other. I'm not saying that both, I kind of think from a macro point of view, we haven't been in a period where 
forget, forget how our economy is doing and whether or not we have a soft landing or a hard landing. I mean, China, by their standards, is having a hard landing, and it's a little unclear how they're going to, you know, what, what you can do to turn it around in China. As I say, in 08, they threw money at the real estate business. They can't, they're not going to, and probably can't do that now. So they're just going to have to work their way out of it. What that means, I think, is that equity worldwide might be lower. So if you want to own an Adobe or Snowflake, which I think for the next five, 10 years, you do want to own probably both those companies, maybe you'll get them cheaper. With that, everyone stay healthy and we'll be back on next Wednesday. We'll we'll get back into the, uh, I, I guess, uh, well, we'll have to consult with Mike and Jason during the week, but I suspect next week, like we, we did the video, I think next week we'll probably focus in on AMD and we may have some additional commentary on Adobe and uh, other favorite companies like Snowflake, but we'll try to concentrate over the next few weeks on the, uh, on the chip stock. Take care of everyone. Be healthy. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 